So when they were handing out last names, right, these two guys were gifted, okay? <laughs> Vereldis? There's a silent Z in there, man. Crazy. Password strength, strong. And Zinsmeister? That's got to get you a free drink somewhere in Germany. But let's make it easy and introduce to you, the Arizona Sports Saturday audience, your hosts, Mitch and Steve on Arizona Sports Saturday. Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. And a happy Saturday to all of you out there listening. This is Arizona Sports Saturday. It's your weekend stop for live and local sports talk. Steve Zinsmeister. I'm Ben Varelis. Trevor Henry is behind the glass, keeping you company for the next two and a half hours here from the Auction Community Studios. Uh, Steve, I want to start with this, and we'll talk about the Suns to open the show, but uh, there's basketball news. Rudy Gobert has entered health and safety protocols. Oh, the irony. <laughs> Well, seeing as how he created uh, COVID single-handedly in the NBA. Patient zero is at it again. I'm being facetious, of course, but it was his fault, pretty much, that the uh, the shutdown began in the NBA. It was going to happen eventually regardless, but Rudy Gobert made a joke of it. Yes. Um, so I think a lot of people will be unsympathetic to his situation. The best response I got when we were in the newsroom before we got ready for today's show, the question asked by a good friend of ours. CQ, we call him, our guy Kerry. Did he touch the microphones on his way out the night before? It's a valuable question. Um, I think, you know what surprises me? I haven't seen a player go on health and safety protocols, like what, what essentially is COVID. Not in a while. COVID list. Not in a while. I haven't seen that in forever. I felt like in baseball, I mean, we're, we're wrapping up the season. The World Series is going to conclude in the next couple of days. I haven't seen a baseball player go on COVID IL or whatever they call it in the MLB. Nope. I haven't seen football players go on injured reserve or None whatever it. it is for None it. of it. I haven't seen that in a while. That's surprising. So, yeah, just to, wanted to start with some ironic news before we get to today's news. The ball goes to Winslow. He wants to lob it. He throws it in underneath. The ball goes in the corner, and the shot is from the corner by Grant that is good. And does it count? It does. And Grant from the corner has hit the shot and won the game. Brutal, brutal ending to last night's Suns game. They lose to Portland 108 106. The Suns are 6 2 on the year. Uh, They're 0 2 against the Trailblazers, so that's kind of cool. Listen, the the Suns got gypped last night. If you want to just look at the last play of the game, the Suns got robbed. Well, you don't have to look at the last play of the game. We have the answers. The last two-minute report came out, Steve. Oh, those are always fun. Are you, are you when ready the for NBA the... does a uh, mea culpa and explains how they it's, were wrong. It's the. Uh, do you ever watch South Park? The Captain Hindsight character. Do you yeah. remember him? Yeah. That's what the last two-minute report is. Okay. Here you go. What'd they say? Portland Trailblazers Keon Johnson should have been called for a defensive three seconds on the Suns' last possession. Those are hard to indicate. Those ones so are a little I'll, bit I'll, more difficult. Yeah. Throw them a bone on that one. Mikael Bridges did not travel on his last. Call. Oh, really? You know, it's funny. I watched the replay. I kind of thought he traveled. The tripping over his feet? Yeah. I don't know. I guess it was just the irony of him getting called for that when what happened on the last play. Well, guess what the last two-minute report said. What's it say? Jeremy Grant did travel on his buzzer beater. Oh, shocking. 
<laughs> it's one of those plays. I mean, you just played the uh, the clip from Al McCoy, and usually uh, Al really encapsulates how I and all other Suns fans feel in the moment. I felt that on that particular play, Al did us a solid by not being outraged like all of us were. Um, I, I don't think he really knew. I No, probably not. And maybe his angle was not ideal for seeing the walk. Basically, Jeremy Grant catches that ball with one hand while taking steps backwards and then takes an extra two. Stumbles backwards like a Buster Keaton character in I the mean, old movies. He could have ran down the tunnel to the locker room and then taken the shot and the, the ref wouldn't have called it a travel. The edit would be on a latest edition of Shacked and a Fool. It would just, he keeps walking backwards and backwards and backwards and backwards and backwards. Now here's the thing. If you want to watch that play and say that it was a travel, it should have been called, uh, it should be replayable. I can agree with you on all of that. If you want to say the Suns got robbed, totally get it. I just said it like two minutes ago. But if you want to look at the entire game and how the Suns played throughout, there's a lot of things you could have improved upon. Yeah, here's Number, And we're going to get to this in a second, but Cam Johnson only played five minutes due to injury. Right. So that plays a factor. Uh, Devin Booker was eight for 21 in this game. I mean, that's not ideal. Not ideal, but he did kind of help them. He scored 25 of the team's points, which led the team. But like to your point, Steve, how about don't get down 15? You ever try that? Especially at home? Especially with this bench that has been, for the most part, been playing super well and has been relied upon heavily these last few games. There are minuses in the plus-minus box all over the board last night. Dario Saric, nine minutes, zero points. Four minutes for Biombo, two points. Five minutes for Akogi, zero points. Like, Chris Paul hit one field goal in 34 oh, minutes. Chris Paul just does not look like the shooter we know him to be. I, I don't he even still need had 11 him to be assists, a shooter. But he doesn't look like a shooter anymore. I don't need him to be a shooter, per se, I, but one field goal in 34 minutes? He only took four. He took three of them from range. I mean, two. we, we so talked he only about, took one basket from inside the arc. We talked about it last Saturday, um, That and we talked about it with Kevin Zimmerman from the Empire of the Suns podcast and ArizonaSports.com. Uh, you know, talking about are they holding Chris Paul back a little bit in order to keep him fresh for the playoffs? Now, uh, you can make that argument, and I certainly believe that there's an element of that going on, but right. that doesn't preclude him from shooting. You know what I mean? Like, there's clearly something off here. He played 34 minutes and only took four shots. Yeah. He took as many shots from the free throw line as he did the field the entire game. He had two more shot attempts than Cam Johnson. Cam Johnson got injured after five minutes and left. Yeah. Also, the only field goal that Chris Paul hit was a three-pointer. Three of his four shots were from deep. That's not Chris Paul's game. It's not. It doesn't make sense. Damian Lillard didn't even play in this game. And also, you know what's ironic, too, a little bit about that last shot uh, from Jeremy Grant, other than the fact that he traveled right after Mikel Bridges got called for a travel? The other irony is Jeremy Grant is the ideal player to fit the Suns. Like, that's yeah. a player that we've talked about, you and I, on this show over the last, I don't know, year? Back when he plus? was in Detroit and available? Yeah, like, that's the player that I would have been like, yeah, that's a great fit. An athletic 3-4 wing kind of player, can shoot the three a little bit, can play good defense, he's super athletic. Last night, he had a coming out party. He had 30 points, he was 10 for 17, 9 for 11 from the free throw line, the guy gets to the line. I'll say this much, when you have no Dame Lillard, and then last minute they had no Anthony Simons either, Portland did, Jeremy Grant becomes the dude. And, and he was the dude. <laughs> he was the dude. 10 of 17, one, one of three from three, 30 points, also had five assists and a couple of boards. Here's the other thing. He was 9 of 11 from the free throw line. He went to the line quite a bit last night. A lot. Quite and a I lot. look around at the at the roster. I mean, without Lillard, 
this team doesn't have a lot going for it. I'm not going to lie to you. Like Justice Winslow, uh, Nurkic, Hart, Sharp, like this is Eubanks, just, this is the, Walker. This Nobody is the there problem, scares me. Though. They they don't look scary on paper. But you lost to them twice. But guess what? They're six and two. Yeah, they're six and two. They're the best team in the West right now. It's weird. I don't like it. I mean, between them and Utah being seven and three after their victory over the Lakers last night, the West is off to a rather obscure start. Okay, so the Suns get the Blazers again tonight at home again. And doesn't Dame make L- sense. Damian Lillard might return. Okay, I'm not that's promising a, anything. That's he a factor. Might. Here's the thing, though. Cam Johnson leaves the game with what looked like a non-contact knee injury yesterday, yep. which usually in sports is a very, very bad thing. It's a death sentence. Uh, we don't really have an update that I'm aware of. No. So we don't know what his situation is. I was reading on Twitter last night that he left the stadium in crutches, which isn't the end of the world. Could be precautionary. We, I mean, just last Saturday, you and I were talking about DeAndre Ayton going out with an injury early in a game, and we didn't know how long he would be missing. Aiton played last night. so And they needed him last night. So it's one of those things where, I mean, Cam Johnson could be a couple days, could be a couple of games, could be a long time, could be nothing. And so now you have to, in your mind, you have to prepare yourself as a Suns fan. What does this team look like without Cam Johnson? Because he's been relied upon very heavily this season. The whole reason that Jay Crowder is sitting at home and not playing for the Suns is because the team decided we're all in on Cam Johnson as our starting four. And now you could potentially be without him for a short period of time, a long period of time. I have no idea. Which is, in general, it's a blow. Because the whole idea was to set up this season for Cam to be a key piece of the starting rotation. He's a big-time shooter. He can shoot from range. He had 29 points the other night before this game. The one against uh, Minnesota, I believe it was. And now, here you are. You're likely going into tonight with, I don't know, who would you start? Would you start Troy Craig? Would you start Damian Lee in place of Cam Johnson? So, Would if you start you, Landry Shamit? It's a good question. If you look at the bench, what player is most similar to Cam Johnson and what he provides? That's probably Torrey Craig. He's nowhere near the shooter that Cam is. They've had Damian Lee in some closing lineups lately. Yeah, Damian Lee's a two-guard, though, so that essentially would mean you're playing Paul, Booker, and Lee. Well, you go a little smaller, and Portland's not much bigger. I mean, Bridges they, is your four? That's they, not bad. They had Justice Winslow run the point last night. He's listed as a power forward, but he's only like 6'9", six, 6'8". Six, so my, they're not that much taller. I guess my point is you don't have anybody on the bench who is what Cam Johnson is. No. And I guess that's probably true of a lot of starting players in the NBA. Dario Saric played nine minutes. Could he see some more time as a power forward? Yeah, you could see that. Torrey Craig played 23 minutes. Could I see that up to 27, 28? Yeah, I could see that too. Josh Kogi's available to play a little bit more. I think they'll be all right in the short term. If this is a couple of games or a couple of days, I think they'll be all right. If you were to say Cam Johnson's going to miss time long term, then I'm now worried. all of a sudden I'm thinking, you know who would be perfect to fill that spot? Somebody who's roughly like six six to six eight, can okay. play D, okay, uh, can shoot the three, okay, some toughness, who could that be? Playoff experience. I just described Jay Crowder to you. Oh, that's interesting. Who's sitting on his butt at home because he doesn't want to play for the Suns. Now, I assume that's because they went to him and said, hey, Cam Johnson's our starter. And he's like, all right, well, then I want out. But if you're Jay Crowder this morning and you wake up and this is the situation and Cam's going to miss a few games or a while, how do you feel? Here's a job. Do you want it? It's here. I don't know how Jay feels, but I would assume that it's one of two things. Either he's elated that there might be an opportunity to sneak back into this team and be a part of it, or he's looking at it and going, well, you could have had me. 
Arizona Cardinals, a big game this weekend against the Seattle Seahawks. This is to the point that it could define Cliff Kingsbury's season. That's next on Arizona Sports Saturday. Mitch and Steve on Arizona Sports Saturday. Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Hey, thanks for joining us on Arizona Sports Saturday. Steve Zinsmeister, Mitch Vareldis with you. Tell me if you've heard this story before, but the Arizona Cardinals have the Seattle Seahawks division rival this weekend. Feels like they just played them. Wasn't that like three weeks ago, I believe? Three weeks ago. And I remember at the time thinking that this was an opportunity for the Cardinals to get right. And it was a bit of a trap game, seeing as how the Seahawks had one of the worst defenses in the league at the time. Still a pretty bad defense overall in terms of the rankings. But much improved. But improved in the last couple of weeks. I mean, the Cardinals scored nine points in that game in Seattle. You want to break it down even further? Okay. The Cardinals offense scored three points that game. Yikes. You know what else I remember? That was also the first time they scored points in the first quarter. It and was. And the offense refused to score after that. It was, but they still hadn't scored a touchdown in the first quarter. Correct. At that point. But that was the first time all season they had scored in the first quarter. Opening drive, they went down the field, and then they stalled out at goal to go, and Matt Amendola kicked a field goal. Somehow made it. We all held our breath, obviously. And then that was the game that they went for it on like all of the fourth downs on the opposite side of the field because they didn't trust the kicker from 40 yards out, which begs the question, why did you re-sign the kicker, etc.? So opening drive, they scored three points, and then they didn't score the rest of the game offensively. I'll, I'll say this. The injury report is not nearly as bad this week as it was then. Uh, you've got three guys who are listed as out. Rodney Hudson, center. Oof, that hurts. Five weeks in a row, by the way. Yeah. Max Garcia, out. And Christian Matthew out. I don't think Max Garcia and Christian Matthew are the biggest deal in the world. Rodney Hudson. Here's one of the problems I had during the Minnesota game last week. A lot of the pressure came up the middle. Billy Price did not look like he was up to the task, shall I say. I like Billy Price. I I liked him in college. He was a Buckeye. A lot of you who listen to the show know that I'm a Buckeye fan. So I liked him. But I'll acknowledge he hasn't had the best track record in the NFL. So when you sign him off the street, there's a reason that he's available and Billy Price now basically being asked to be the starting center. There was uh, an ill-timed snap. I believe it was in the fourth quarter. Definitely know it was in the second half where they snapped it before Kyler was even ready. That ends up being a fumble. They did recover it, but there's a loss of a down and a loss of yards that you could have back. Um, there were several blitzes up the middles. Darius Smith had a day with this offensive line. And they were missing their left tackle, too. I get that as well. DJ Humphrey's listed as questionable for this game. And I guess that's the other part I should get to. James Conner, still questionable. Dennis Gardeck, not looking good, questionable. Uh, Jonathan Ledbetter, also questionable. Uh, Buda Baker is questionable. That one worries me a little bit more. However, um, Gambo had hinted yesterday that it sounds like Buda okay. Conner trending to come back. However, Conner was questionable last week and then was... A non-decision, like, before the game started. Yeah, all those guys I just listed that were questionable practiced in limited capacity yesterday. Yikes. So, take that for what it's worth, but at least it is a cleaner report going into this game than it was the last time you played the Seahawks. Do I feel better, though, this time around? They're going to be home. Not like that's been an advantage. And Seattle is on, I believe, a three-game winning streak at the moment. And to the discussion point that we brought up to begin this segment... Their defense is playing so much better. So much better. Now, they played the Giants last week, and 
credit to the Giants because they're they were five and one going into that game or six and one, one of the two. And their offense was completely held in check by the Seattle defense. And a big part of it has been the rise of a rookie cornerback by the name of Tariq Woolen, who was the one that intercepted the final pass attempt by the Cardinals in the last time they played. He's really coming to his own. He's going to have a different task in DeAndre Hopkins. That's probably the biggest difference between these two matchups will be the fact that D-Hop is back. But Tariq Woolen is definitely one to keep your eyes on, and that matchup for sure will be one to watch. Because, as we all know, DeAndre Hopkins basically makes the offense work, in a nutshell. I mean, what did we just say? The offense scored three points the last time they played the Seahawks. Three. Do we feel confident that they're going to score more than three this time around? Hell, do we feel confident that they can score a touchdown in the first quarter? I don't don't even think I'm there yet. I wouldn't bet on it. I wouldn't bet on it. Yeah, I'm watching the Vikings game, too, by the way. Or really, even the last two weeks. Hopkins has just immediately fit in. And we all kind of hoped that would happen. I didn't think it was a guarantee, especially when you know that Marquise Hollywood-Brown goes down and they haven't actually played a game together yet. But Hopkins has looked great. And he and Murray seem to have that rapport that they always had before the suspension. So that's a good sign at the very least. But one thing that you and I talked about off the air was that if you look at the Saints game, the first game back for Hopkins, his route tree, he's all over the field. He's playing on the left side, he's playing on the right side, all different types of routes. And he played very, very well, out of his mind at times. The second game, he's only on the left side of the field. Drove me nuts. Which wasn't the end of the world because he played well, but at the same time, what it means is that Kyler didn't go to the right side of the field very much, which has generally been... A.J. Green side of the field. And we've talked about this a couple of different weeks in a row where you're not even looking to the right half of the field because A.J. hasn't been open. You're not looking that direction. They're basically negating half of the field when they play offense. It's such a waste. I mean, aside from the fact that the conversation we had last week about that intermediate area of the field is what it's called, that open space in the center of the field that usually gets opened up. Kind of like five yards out. Right, when either a safety drops back to help coverage on the right side or the left side, then you've got this space open in the middle. Usually works for an uh, up-crossing route from a slot receiver or a tight end. That's usually that spot. But Kyler doesn't throw there. Why? Because he throws deep left passes to DeAndre Hopkins, and that's just what this offense has become. It's, It's frustrating, especially looking at the two charts from the two weeks and like, oh, wow, DeAndre Hopkins was all over the place. He was in the slot. He was in the left. He was in the right. And then all of the questions asked to head coach Cliff Kingsbury about it, and they just deflected it the whole way. Right. What? The, what? Why the change? Yeah, why all of a sudden just go back to your normal plan, your right. normal, boring offensive plan? Now, you could make the argument like, okay, we wanted to implement Robbie Anderson more, and he was more comfortable on one side than both. I, I could understand that if he had played more. Yeah, if they wanted to implement Robbie Anderson, they would have done it for more than seven snaps. Right. So that's not the argument. Now, one thing that I actually enjoyed about the Vikings game was that in the second half, Rondale Moore got a couple of actual routes. Yes. (laughs) Like he actually caught passes with real routes, not the not the wheel routes or the the jet passes or whatever. Like you'll look at a Rondale Moore route chart. You know what it is? Behind the line. I'm diagramming this for our radio audience, so I'm doing a fantastic job as a visual teacher. It's behind the line. It's like, hey. I'm right here up against the line of scrimmage. Now let me just go back five yards and then I'll get tackled because my blockers weren't there. Because we talked last week about how the Cardinals don't really pass in rhythm, meaning they don't do dropbacks 
and then Kyler lets go of the ball at the end of his drop back, which is timed up with the end of a route. Right. They don't do that a lot. The team that does that a lot is the Seahawks. Geno Smith currently leading the league in completion percentage for all starting quarterbacks. His accuracy 73%. is incredible yeah. as well. And they pass in rhythm, meaning the routes have ends. Like The point of the route is to get to a certain spot so that you can be hit in rhythm. They do that really well. The Cardinals... Uh, to my enjoyment, started to do more and more of that towards the end of the game. Second half, last game, Rondell Moore gets a couple of those. And by the way, his speed was evident in that game. Oh, yeah. I don't know that I felt confident that people who don't know about Rondell Moore, they had their eyes open during this game. I don't know that any game before this they would have because he gets that touchdown grab. He had another one where he got tripped up where he looked even faster than the touchdown grab. I I thought Rondell Moore, it felt like they unlocked him in the second half last game. You ask any NFL expert, like someone who truly pays attention to the NFL, you ask them about Rondell Moore, they will go bananas that he doesn't get any opportunities beyond the line of scrimmage. No, he I mean, there was Not until last game. Mina Kimes joked uh, early in the Vikings game, can I start a change.org for Rondale Moore to have more passes beyond the line of scrimmage? Be great. And then Bill Barnwell was adding route charts of Rondale Moore just only getting targeted behind the line of scrimmage. It's so annoying. It's so infuriating. You know the other conclusion I came to in the Viking, while watching the Vikings-Cardinals game? It, Kevin O'Connell and... Uh, and Cliff Kingsbury are both considered offensive-minded coaches. Cliff's offense is predicated on drawing route trees. His offense is, is quote-unquote, beautiful because of the routes. That's the offensive genius for him. For O'Connell, it's the blocking. Yeah. It's the blocking. And I, I would much prefer an offense that's predicated on the blocking scheme rather than the route tree scheme, if well, that makes sense. Think, think about what made him so successful at that. Where was he the year before? The Super Bowl winning Rams offensive coordinator. A a triple crown season for one wide receiver Cooper Cup. And now with him gone, the Rams can't run the, the ball. The Rams look miserable. So they just brutal. Just saying. This weekend, the World Series will come to a conclusion. But are the Astros still just a bunch of cheaters? Is that how people view them? We'll dig into that next on Arizona Sports Saturday. Ferreldis, Steve Zinsmeister, Arizona Sports Saturday. Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. That's us, Mitch and Steve, here on Arizona Sports Saturday. Tonight is game six of the World Series. They're taking Philly and Houston back to Minute Maid Park in Houston. Astros with a 3-2 advantage. Is this the final game? Of the World Series. Steve Zinsmeister, go. Uh, Well, I did predict before the World Series that the Astros would win in six, so I'm going to stick with that prediction. But here's the thing. I think everybody was rooting for the Phillies going into this World Series. We're still rooting for the Phillies. Well, and probably still are to some degree, yeah. Just because of what happened in 2017 and that we found out in 2020, 2021. I forget when we found out. 19 into 20. 19 into 20. Right. The cheating scandal. Yes. Uh, it's funny, I was just reading a book about the 2017 cheating scandal, and I think that that stigma of what happened and what we found out and the, and the such a slight punishment for the Astros, I think that really still resonates around baseball, that a lot of people are watching this World Series with one eye on the Phillies and excitement and the other eye on the Astros and go, well, they just, they're cheaters. When in reality, if you want to get super contextual about it, 
Jose, Let's do so. Jose Altuve was on that 2017 team. Uh, Bregman was there. Yep. Uh, Gurriel Verlander was, there. was there. He was just traded that season. Other than that, I mean, I, I understand that Altuve gets the bulk of the criticism for the cheating scandal because of the whole thing where people thought he had buzzers on his chest under which his is, jersey. Which is kind of funny because I actually believe he wasn't part of it. I, I, uh, yeah, I, 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 mean, I tend to believe what he says, but... Maybe it, I have a soft spot for a dude that's the same height as me. It was the visual. It was the visual of a five foot four, uh, or whatever he is. I'm exaggerating, but <laughs> the shortest player in the league hitting a home run off of the most dominant left-handed pitcher that this game has seen in a decade. Right, Aroldis Chapman, and he hits the home run, and then while crossing home plate, the visual of him He's holding his jersey, jersey together. Like no, no nobody no. does that. And he uh, said later it was because he was afraid they were going to rip his jersey off, and he doesn't. He's embarrassed to not have a shirt on. I was like, when have you ever seen a team rip your jersey off when you hit a home run? That's never happened before. Why would you be worried about that? So I understand the visual of it. Sure. I just don't think I, I don't look at this Astros team and think about the cheating scandal. Like, are we fully removed? Jordan Alvarez is their best hitter. Yes, he is. He was nothing to do with the 2017 cheating scandal. In fact, he was a Dodgers prospect. Uh, Kyle Tucker, very well-rounded outfield pl- uh, outfielder for the Astros. Nothing to do with that team. I think he was in the system. Might have even been on the roster, but he didn't play in 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, most of these guys had nothing to do with it. Framber Valdez, Luis Garcia, uh, I mean, Christian Javier. In general, the think, entire bullpen. Think None about of them were how, there. Think about how much younger and more different this team is now compared to what it was then. Because the main core of that group of guys, half of them are gone. Like Altuve, Bregman, Springer, Correa. Springer and Correa are gone. The rest of it was supplemented by old guys like Brian McCann, Evan Gaddis, Josh Reddick. They had Verlander. I, this, I agree with you. It's a different team. It's a different regime. They're trying to shirk this negative narrative around them. I understand that. Do I feel any differently about that 2017, 2017 team? No. No, and you don't have to. Do I feel differently about this 2022 team and every subsequent Astros team? Somewhat, a little bit. That's where I'm at. Like, here's the thing. If the Astros win the World Series, am I going to be super mad and call them cheaters? Probably not. Probably not. Am I going to be elated that they won? No, not really. Am I going to go scorched earth against the Astros and still believe that they're cheaters? No, I don't. I don't think that that's the way to go in general. If the Astros win the World Series, they'll have earned it. They were the best regular season. They were one of the best regular season teams. They have been a dominant team for the past mm, half decade or so. And they're, you know what? They're doing it with their own homegrown talent. Jeremy Pena, rookie, fantastic rookie season, right? All these pitchers that you just mentioned between Javier and Valdez and Garcia, like they're doing it their own way. And then they supplemented the bullpen with some Tough veteran relievers like Rafael Montero and Ryan Presley, and then shoring it up with some young guys like Brian Abreu. Like this is a this is a different team. the The stench hangs over a little bit. Yeah, totally does. Also, stench, trash can, banging, whatever. I see what you did, but there. I'm but I'm I'm reserved now. I haven't moved past it, but I'm more reserved to it. If they win, they win. Let's move on.
Well, I think, too, I mean, it deserves to be said. You talked about how they built this organization. I mean, the Astros are in the World Series now with an advantage. They played in the World Series against the Nationals in 2019. They've played in the, they won the World Series in 17. We talked about the cheating. But, like, this team's competitive every year for the last five years. Right. They built an organization from the ground up. At one point in time, this Astros team was the worst team in Major League Baseball for three years in a row. Yep. And I realized there was cheating that happened that went into the 2017 World Series victory. I think that they've been accosted enough for that. The punishment wasn't enough at the time, but there were plenty of guys who lost their jobs. I think Alex Cora shouldn't have been rehired in Boston, but that was their decision, not mine. Right. Um, A.J. Hinch lost his job. You know what? Pretty good manager, though. Gets another job somewhere else. Gets a fresh start in Detroit. I get it. Uh, Jeff Luno, not in baseball anymore. Nope. Uh, I don't know that that means that nobody would hire him. I don't think he got blackballed necessarily. But the people who were responsible were either fired or punished to some degree. You could argue that Altuve, you're still mad at Altuve. You're still mad at Bregman. I, I Maybe you're mad at Verlander, although I don't think anybody has really been mad at Verlander. He was there half the season. Not I mean, even half the season. And he was a waiver trade. And most of the cheating was the hitters, the whole banging on trash right. can thing. So like the pitching staff, I don't know how responsible you want to hold them. It's time to move on and acknowledge that the Astros are one of the best-built teams, one of the best-run organizations in the entire league. I mean, other than them, like maybe you could argue the Dodgers have had some level of success equivalent to them. And the Dodgers won the World Series in 2020. I know a lot of people throw an asterisk on there for the short season, but they still won it. They went to the World Series in 17 and 18. They lost both of those. They're competitive every year. Those are the two best organizations in baseball right now. Yeah. Houston and L.A. I know they both spend a lot more money than typical markets, the Dodgers in particular. But it's time that we stop labeling the Astros as cheaters because most of them weren't even around. 90% of them. Also, who's leading this team into the World Series? Dusty Baker. Is there a more respected manager in the game of baseball than Dusty Baker? Well, don't ask Tony La Russa that question. Wow. Tony LaRusso lost a lot of points with me with what happened in Arizona. He's lost I know he wasn't the manager here. He was franchise runner. Didn't really do much for the organization, though. Yeah, but I mean, and then he goes back to the uh, the White Sox, who have a very talented team, and they just blew it. Yeah, but like Dusty Baker is one of the most respected managers in the game. One of the top ten winningest managers of all time, he and may- no ring. Right, he may be one of the most respected baseball figures, player, manager of all time. And we still want to label the Astros as cheaters? I mean, come on, people. I've had at least three different people in the last week tell me, like, well, they're just a bunch of cheaters. No, they're not. Not these ones, anyway. These guys aren't. Are some Although, of their wouldn't players, it be horrible if we found out? I mean, if were. we found out, yeah, but uh, we live in a country where you have, you have to prove that people did something wrong. And it was proven in 2017. And we can hold them accountable for that. And I believe to some degree that we've done that. Maybe not the degree that everybody wants. But this team, until somebody shows me the evidence that they've done something wrong, I'm not going to label them as cheaters. Okay, let's look at Philly real quick. Obviously have to win back-to-back games in Houston to take this whole thing. Right. Can they even win tonight, though? Framber Valdez has been mowing down hitters this entire postseason. The whole year. He had like a streak of quality starts at like 25 at a time. He's a walking quality start. Phillies have Zach Wheeler, but Zach Wheeler got roughed up the last time he went out there. Yeah, I would say Zach Wheeler has the higher upside between the two pitchers, but like you mentioned about the consistency of Valdez, I mean, I I feel pretty confident he's going to go out and give you five really good innings. So 
I'm sticking with my Astros prediction. I think they went. I think they win tonight. They take it in six. Um, but even if this goes to seven, that's a really exciting World Series, man. What would Game Seven be? Do you know the pitching matchup? Game Seven. If they were to make it to that point, it's probable right now. I would imagine the Philly throws out like a Ranger Suarez, but then Aaron Nola is available at a moment's notice. Yeah. And then I would imagine Houston throws out either, uh, who do they have? Uh, Luis Garcia, Christian Javier had a really, really good game. He was part of a no-hitter, actually. That's the other fascinating thing, is the five-homer barrage by Philly in Game 3, and then immediately followed up by a no-hitter. That's the thing. The Phillies, That's incredible. The Phillies in the offseason built this team as a, we don't care about defense, we're just going to, it's the seven seconds or less songs, We're going to out-hit you. We're going to hit all the home runs. We're going to drive guys in. We're all about offense. We don't care about defense. And that's how we're going to beat you. It's the seven seconds or less Suns, essentially. The baseball equivalent. I like that comparison. I like that. And the Astros, to their credit, to throw together a no-hitter, a uh, combined no-hitter, the first one in World Series history, which I thought was cool, um, for them to do that against a team that they're predicated on offense only, mm-hmm. it's pretty remarkable. One last question before we get out of here. I don't know what your opinion of Bryce Harper was prior to... We'll, we'll say the World Series. We'll say to tonight. Has your opinion changed of Bryce Harper? Like, Since as a personality? When? Since when? Because I think that matters. So, the next chosen one is what he was labeled since high school. Right. It's the 500-plus foot home run with a metal bat in high school. Is the obvious number one pick. Comes up as an immediate superstar. But then he's labeled as overrated as soon as he signs this Philly contract. When he was really young, there was an attitude about him that a lot of people were gravitated towards. But at the same time, I thought wasn't the best. Like he was also coming up at a time when Mike Trout didn't get the didn't get nearly the same attention, didn't get the hype that Harper did when he was in like high school and then junior college and then goes pro Trout proved himself in the minors to be an amazing prospect and then became you know, obviously one of the top players in the league over the last ever. Um, so for that reason, I always preferred Trout. He was an even-keeled guy. You knew you were always going to get his best. Harper had an attitude about him. Sometimes wasn't running through first base on ground out. Stuff like that, you know, like the small stuff. And then eventually when he leaves for Philly, I think a lot of people had a bad taste in their mouth about that. But then the Nationals go out and win the World Series without him. So... My attitude right now is that he is LeBron going back to Cleveland at this point. He is carrying this team to a potential championship. If 100%. they win, it's because Bryce Harper said, we're going to win a ring. 100%. And I respect the hell out of that. I've I've grown to like him a little bit more. Yeah. As a result of this. All right, coming up next, we go around the NFL. We do it our way. And this is a tough week. It's the week of the bipocalypse. We'll explain next on Arizona Sports Saturday. Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Mitch and Steve go around the NFL on Arizona Sports Saturday. You bet we do. It's around the NFL time, 1145 every Saturday. But we do it a little differently than most. We don't predict the winners. We don't predict scores. That's boring. Steve's going to tell you why you should watch the game that is presented. And then I'm going to tell you a fantasy breakout star. Now, the tease going in was this is the bipocalypse. <laughs> fantasy managers have it rough this week. 
Steve, the Cleveland Browns, the Dallas Cowboys, the Denver Broncos, the New York Giants, the Pittsburgh Steelers, and the San Francisco 49ers are all on a bye this week. And you know what's interesting? There's still more good games this week than there were last week. Ooh. Okay. I believe that. That's a nice little tease. Well, I'll set the dinner plate. I almost called that the San Diego Chargers. I just stopped myself. I literally wrote in my notes, San Diego versus Atlanta. I wrote that. It's right here. The Los Angeles Chargers on the road against the Atlanta Falcons, who just got a big piece back. Did they not, Steve? Uh, Patterson? Yes. Cordero Patterson finally back for the... I still have a hard time referring to him as a running back, even though he essentially is a running back. He's like 500 feet tall. You know what this is? It's a battle of former Oregon Duck quarterbacks. Ooh. Interesting. Yes, it is. Enough, but okay. uh, no Keenan Allen, no Mike Williams. Nope. So who does Herbert throw the ball to? I'm still wondering that. By the way, Atlanta is 4-4 four and four and sitting in first place in the NFC South. We all saw it coming. I don't know why you're so surprised. <laughs> what a weird division. <laughs> well, in a year where Brady literally looks like he's gaunt and lost and confused and has no offense... I guess it makes sense. Anything's possible. Um, If Cordero Patterson's just barely coming back from an injury, I don't think it's quick to assume that he'll just fantasy maul everybody. And the Falcons don't really have a good passing attack. And the Chargers are down all their top receivers. Austin Eckler. This is probably the Austin Eckler game. He'll get all of the PPR stats, fantasy, etc., etc. Now, this one I look as, holy smokes, look at all the fantasy potential in Miami Dolphins against the Chicago Bears. Yeah, the Dolphins have the third-ranked passing attack in the entire league, and the Bears are the best rushing team in the NFL. But the Bears just traded two of their best defensive players in Rokon Smith and Robert Quinn, yet they also added Chase Claypool. I just don't understand their strategy. We think the, the defense is fine, even though we just gave up 49 to the Cowboys the week prior. Yeah. And the offense needs to get better. I don't get it. It's I really a, don't get it. A lot of confusion. But... It's, it's boding well. Justin Fields has had two really good back-to-back weeks, fantasy-wise. Khalil Herbert has been a nice compliment to David Montgomery, especially when Montgomery fumbles. Claypool, how much action will he get? I'm not totally sure. I still think you kind of stay away from the Bears. I, I say that with uh, three Bears in my starting lineup this week. But Miami's passing attack has just brutalized the defenses this year. It's either Tyree Kill or Jaden Waddle. If you have them, you're, you're golden for the rest of the year. Tyree Kill is doing incredible things. The Carolina Panthers on the road against the Cincinnati Bengals. Jamar Chase is going to be on the shelf for a little while, but the Bengals are still flushed with capable receivers, if you ask me. Meanwhile, the Panthers are choosing to play an XFL-caliber quarterback with no arm instead of Baker Mayfield or Sam Darnold. And they scored 20-plus the last two weeks. I wouldn't be shocked if Sam Darnold ends up being the third official starting quarterback at some point of this team. Jeez. Uh, I know they fired their coach, and they've been really bad and all that. They traded Christian McCaffrey. I get it. They're in shambles, but you're really going to roll with P.J. Walker? I don't know. The offense seems to be working right now. And I'll tell you what, the way Cincinnati looked against Cleveland on Monday doesn't give me a lot of positive hopes for how they'll look against Carolina, who's played some really good football the last couple of weeks. And I like Deontay Foreman, who had three touchdowns last week. He's good. There's no Chuba Hubbard again for Carolina. So this is another Deontay Foreman game if you have him. Green Bay Packers against the Detroit Lions. In the past, probably an obvious pick. And this time around, I don't know. Which way are you leaning on this one? Name me one team in the league that's more one-dimensional than the Lions. 
They're the fourth best offense in the league and the absolute worst defense you could find. It is impeccable. Uh, former Packer, now Lion, Jamal Williams, second in the league in touchdown runs. So he's, got a he's lot been of really them. good. Uh, but this team, they just can't stop anyone to save their lives. So for that reason, I'm going Green Bay. You mentioned it. Jamal Williams has been a touchdown machine this year. Yes. And it sounds like DeAndre Swift is not going to go again. So as long as Detroit can establish their running game, it means going a lot to Jamal Williams, which means if you have him, play him. He's good. Indianapolis Colts and the New England Patriots. See, I thought Jonathan Taylor would lead the league in rushing. I was so wrong. Well, he kind of has to. So wrong. He kind of has to play to do that, doesn't he? Yeah, they're likely going to have to rely on some dude named Dion Jackson to carry the ball. No, no idea who that is. Meanwhile, it's a Stephon Gilmore. Revenge game. Revenge game. He faces his former team, the I Patriots. I forgot he was on the Colts. Didn't he win Defensive Player of the Year a couple of years yes, ago? Yes, sir. And then he kind of fell off the face of the earth. But he got traded. Yeah. Because they're like, well, no, nah, we don't want to pay you. Although they had just paid Jalen Mills in the offseason. That's an interesting strategy. We'll see if it pays off, Cotton. Anything else that you wanted to add on that one? No, not really. I don't like any of the Colts, fantasy-wise, in this one. (laughs) Me neither. If you have New England's defense, if you can get it, it's been a really good defense this year, and the Colts are struggling. Who is not struggling? (laughs) Boy, howdy. The Buffalo Bills are not struggling. They're in East Rutherford taking on the Jets. Yeah, the Bills, I mean, they haven't been 6-1 and since Jim Kelly led them to the Super Bowl for the fourth time in 1993. Uh, They're the most complete team in the league, hands down. 100%. First-ranked offense, third-ranked defense, and actually the Jets are kind of decent. What are they like, five and two? They're five so, and three. Heading into this one, they're decent. They're five and three. They're also a eleven and a half point underdog at home. Eleven and a half. Yeah, that's because they're decent, but the Bills are dominant. You know what else? There's a difference. Zach Wilson is not a good passing quarterback. No. So this does not bode well. And that's kind of what you do when you're a quarterback. This does not bode well (laughs) for any Jets receivers. Uh, They've also ruled out James Robinson, the running back they acquired from the Jaguars. I Like with the Colts, I would stay away from Jets fantasy-wise. And if you have any Bills, literally any Buffalo Bills, play him. Like, even Naheem Hines, if you have him, play him. (laughs) Something's good going to happen. Minnesota Vikings against the Washington Commanders, who are now 4-4 and with Taylor Heineke. Well, you know what this is. It's a Kirk Cousins revenge game. Well, I mean, it's a revenge game. Yeah, they gave up on him. That's true. Definitely a revenge game. He stole all the money, though. So here's the question. Does Washington regret not investing in Kirk Cousins? Maybe. It's also a Kevin O'Connell revenge game, too, because he was an offensive coach in D.C. for several years with with Cousins for a year there. I never thought I'd say this, but the Vikings will storm our nation's capital this weekend. How about this? If the Commanders win this game, it'll be the first time in the Ron Rivera Commanders tenure they'll be above 500. That's not a very good statistic. It's not a good statistic. For but them. you know who does make good statistics is the Minnesota Vikings offense. Justin Jefferson, Dalvin Cook, Alexander Madison, and the newest piece, TJ Hawkinson. What a could trade. just explode all over this commander's defense. Las Vegas Raiders against the Jacksonville Jaguars in what you might call 
a tank bowl. Yeah, two teams with massive problems right now. The Raiders just got shut out against the Saints last week. Derek Carr was benched for Jarrett Stidham. Now, I think that was just like a fourth quarter thing. I don't think they're going to go with Stidham long term over Carr. They couldn't. Uh, but someone's going to have a chance to use this as a get right game. So somebody's got to win. I think the team that's going to get right, though, is the Raiders. And they've got a really good rushing attack with Josh Jacobs, who's had a pretty solid year for a guy in the final year of his current deal. Josh Jacobs, if you got him. Only two. Two afternoon games, and one of them features the team that we're keeping our eyes on, the Arizona Cardinals, hosting the Seattle Seahawks. Yeah, and the Seahawks are the fourth-best scoring offense in the NFL behind Geno Smith, who we mentioned earlier. We saw this coming. the league in passing. We totally saw this coming. I know. 100%. Uh, Totally. Jeez. The last time these two teams met, which was like yesterday, uh, the Cardinals only managed nine points, three of them offensively. It's an opportunity for revenge at home for the Cardinals. I'm going with a sneaky pick here, and I'm doing this based off of a, an ad drop that I had to make this week. Seattle Seahawks defense against the Cardinals offense. I'm curious. Kyler Murray has not been accurate a lot this year. He has his favorite target, but that hasn't really mattered. He had a bunch of picks last week. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking Seattle's defense might actually be reaping some benefits this week. This was a marquee game start of the season. This is not a great game right now, though. The L.A. Rams against the Tampa Bay Bucks. Yeah, they're the last two Super Bowl winners, and the Bucks lost to the Rams in the playoffs last year, so it would have been a revenge game if they were playing any better. Tom Brady has lost three straight games. Here's He's a, never done that. Here's a fun fact for you. Tom Brady is two games under 500 for the first time in his entire oh, wow. 23-year career. That's incredible. They have a chance. The Rams have a chance to send him into retirement. I really think like, that this game could be after it. this game. No, I just think that like there's no coming back if you're down three. <sighs> like three games under 500, I don't think they're coming back for it's that. It's crazy. Tampa Bay's offense just doesn't have the rhythm. They have great receivers, but they have no rushing attack to establish that. Tom Brady hasn't looked great. But also, Matthew Stafford hasn't looked great. They don't have any good running backs. They've been benching Cam Akers. They're all over the place. I, if you have Cooper Cup, good for you. I'm not picking somebody else. Tennessee Titans at the Kansas City Chiefs for Sunday Night Football. It's amazing that the Titans are 5-2 and two despite having one of the worst offenses in the league. The opposite could be said of the Chiefs, who struggle defensively. Nonetheless, this could be a matchup of future playoff teams. It's actually my game of the week. I saw Ryan Tannehill is traveling despite the ankle injury. He's questionable. How can your offense be so bad when Derrick Henry is so good? Another 200-yard game. He's had six of those. That's the most in NFL history. That's incredible. If you have Derrick Henry, good for you. Also, a name to keep an eye on, Kadarius Toney. Now that he's healthy, we'll see. Monday night, Baltimore Ravens, New Orleans Saints. 15 sacks in four games. That's pretty good. And then Baltimore added Roquan Smith after that. That's really good. That's really good. They're loading up for a playoff push, I would say. They can run. They get to the quarterback. I mean, that's the basis of a contending team. I'm going to take Baltimore. No Rashad Baton. Likely no Mark Andrews. No Gus Edwards. No J.K. Dobbins. So the Ravens are weak or thin, I should say, in that regard. And I almost just want to pick Taysom Hill because it's fun to pick Taysom Hill. Those are your games this week, week nine in the NFL. When we come back, we'll focus more on the home team and catch up with our Cardinals insider Tyler Drake. That's next on Arizona Sports Saturday.